Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Scholars Beyond the Tower, conversations from our fields. We're all involved in something, and our work matters. I'm Erin. And I'm Caroline. It's May 17th. Welcome to episode three. We're sitting down to chat over coffee with special guest Brenna McCormick-Thompson. Brenna has been working as a museum professional for nearly 10 years and currently serves as the curator of education at the Cold Spring Harbor Whaling Museum. A cultural historian at heart, her interest focuses on the intersection of maritime heritage and collective memory. Brenna, how do you drink your coffee? (laughs) Um, With uh, cream and an embarrassing amount of sweetener. <laughs> I love that. I so I, I went into a Starbucks right as New York was shutting down, and they had removed all of the the sweeteners from the public side of things. So you had to ask them how. Oh you know, no! For which was just the most mortifying thing. Um, I take about depending on the coffee. Starbucks coffee, I'm not a huge fan of. So I take about eight equals in my coffee. Coffee is very important. So whatever helps me get it into my body. Yeah, I am a, like, Lorelai Gilmore on this. I'm just like, just give me coffee and an IV, man. Like, let me, let me have it and go. (laughs) Uh, No, see, I am a a coffee with some form of creamer, whether it's French vanilla, amaretto, hazelnut, whatever. And if they don't have that, then I'm like a cream and just as much sugar as you could pack into the cup. As much sugar. It's important. (laughs) Especially in jobs like ours where you're dealing with the public. (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, uh, being fully caffeinated is the only way that I can get through the day most times. And I'm like, I'm legitimately worried about when we have to start interfacing with like people again, like on like a large scale, because I'm pretty sure I'm just going to like cut somebody off and be like, I'm sorry, I need more coffee. (laughs) Like in the middle of something, they're going to like, I'm going to be like, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but you can come with me to get it. Like. What was your journey like to get to, you know, the Whaling Museum or to get to, you know, this point in your career? Pretty convoluted, but I imagine that that's true for most people. Um, I, uh, I'm i a big maritime history nerd, which I think comes down to the fact that I was um, born and raised in Boston. And Boston likes to remember the good old days, most of which revolve around some form of uh, maritime pursuit. After moving to New York, I, uh, I liked to look back on my time as a Bostonian and was really curious about how people in that region of the country came to understand their lives, um, especially when it came to how their relationship with the sea. So um, I started studying maritime history in undergrad and uh, continued that through to grad school, decided along the way that I wanted to focus on uh, history in museums specifically. I also come from a theater background, so I, I, I like sharing stories with people, but I really like what happens when you get somebody and, and put them in an immersive experience, when you put them in a historical setting, when you surround them with, with artifacts, um, what happens to them emotionally and how that affects the way they connect with the history that you're telling them. 
um, both of my parents are, are traditional <laughs> academics. Um, so I, I looked at what they did and, and not, you know, to knock what they did. It, it looks like a lot of fun and I'm sure I would have enjoyed it, but um, I wanted something a little bit more physical, if that makes sense. I love the way that you just described it, as, <laughs> you know, like as this thing that happens to people when you put them in not necessarily a new place, right? Because everyone who grew up in New England, and I'm including the Long Island Sound communities in that, because mm. um, just like very culturally, we are more part of New England than the Mid-Atlantic, I would say. So when you put us all in like a historical setting, or you, like when you create that world, like really interesting things happen to people, like like school kids and teenagers and adults, um, people of all ages. And I, I really like that you described it the way that you did. I think you also hand it something that's really important. The, our jobs, there's so much of our job focuses on immersion, but it, there's also this performance element to it that I don't know that we talk about a lot. I had a teacher once that told me, you know, teaching is performing. You're putting on a show. And I think that's what we do a lot of the time when we're teaching in museums too, even if we don't necessarily recognize it as that. Absolutely. Uh, there, I mean, performance and storytelling, you know, if you are able to engage your audience and as Caroline mentioned, whether that's school children or um, the general public, adults, uh, academics, if you're able to draw them in and tell them a story, the information that you impart, I think at least, will stay with them a lot longer and they'll be more readily able to incorporate it into the historical narrative that they already have been building in their minds over the course of their lifetime. Absolutely. And, you know, I grew up in New York on the Long Island Sound, like on like the part of New York that's actually attached to the United States, like in school. And we're told, you know, like this land is really old and, and we get like all these like super colonial origin stories about the Northeast. Right. And I remember in one of my jobs, I used to work at an archive and in one of my jobs I was sitting there with, you know, a, a bunch of lovely, lovely people who were like very deeply invested in preserving the history of these, you know, like Long Island Sound communities and, you know, telling their stories. But someone said, and she can't have been more than like 18 years old. She said, um, really, I mean, whose family didn't come over on the Mayflower? <laughs> That was like a moment where I realized that um, there's so much more work to do in telling the stories of these Long Island Sound communities and how important it is to just keep telling the story and, and you know, emphasizing that, that yes, this is like a very old place and it has had, you know, English speaking settlement for quite some time. Not everybody came over on the Mayflower, and to ignore that is to really like do a disservice. At least I feel to the community. Oh, absolutely. I, I, I mean, I think Aaron probably has a, a lot to say about <laughs> this, <laughs> but I just, you know, in terms of what I do, looking at maritime communities, I they're they're in just a constant state of movement in terms of the people who make up them and. To think of Long Island as this kind of, I mean, first of all, you know, disregarding the fact that you're then erasing thousands of years of human history on Long Island before uh, yeah. European colonists. Um, if we stick to the history that, that we're even telling kids in school, um, which is very, you know, 
white centric, um, which is problematic in and of itself, but you're still, that's still such a flat story. If you, if you just kind of go from colonial New York to the present, um, you're missing so much. And I think there was this really interesting book I read for, um, my comps exam. It was by Jeannie O'Brien. And for the life of me, I can't remember the title right now. Uh, but she was talking about New England and how there is sort of this active project of forgetting the Native American origins of these areas. And it really goes into dispossession and how these people are erased. And it's not just a coincidence that they're erased. There's like an actual intentional project there. And I have to say, reading that made me think about Long Island very differently. And it made me look at how that history panned out here. There are a lot of similarities, I'd say, especially with the way the North Shore of Long Island functions. But yeah, and I mean, I also think about elementary school. I went to school on Long Island and we had Colonial Day in fourth grade where everyone dressed up like a colonist and played colonial games. And then we had Iroquois Day where everyone dressed up like a Native American. We weren't looking at Native Americans living on Long Island at all. I don't think we ever learned about them. We spent about five seconds on it, but I think we only did that. So I grew up in the Maranac. I think we only did that because like the town symbol is someone who we have been told is Chief Mamaroneck. And the line between the communities that make up the Mamaroneck Public School District is on this road that's called Richbell Road. And John Richbell was the man who stole the land from Mamaroneck. So it's this like very like weird cognitive dissonance that I think we all grew up with. And I, I actually have a an extremely different experience. Oh, um, please share. And, <laughs> and wonders, well, it's very uncommon. So I, 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 I grew up in Boston and I, I um, lived there until middle school. And um, my elementary school was a, a dual English-Spanish elementary school, um, uh, Rafael Hernandez. I actually I don't know if it's still there, but it was an excellent school. Um, and I was one of only um, a handful of Native English speakers at the school and, and one of um, less than half a dozen uh, Caucasian kids there. And the history that we were given was really different than I think I would have experienced had I gone somewhere else. So it, it was a, it was a Boston public school. So we had to talk about the Revolutionary War because you have to. Um, so so yeah, we I did. think they throw you out if you don't. Yeah. Oh, no, no, it's true. I actually it took me until like high school and, and embarrassingly late time in my life to realize that the revolution happened um, outside of Massachusetts at any point in time. Um, (laughs) But uh, so we did a every year we sort of did the same thing. We did a unit on the revolution right around Thanksgiving. But then the rest of our history curriculum was almost entirely um, the history of Native peoples of Central and South America. I grew up with really no old world history. And a much different appreciation of the way that the indigenous people of the Americas shape the lives that we're living today. And I think that that made me a little bit more sensitive when I was out and about elsewhere in New England as a child, um, 
to those stories, I, I definitely tried to find, I was really fascinated by the Algonquin people and um, place names in New England in particular, you know, Massachusetts, uh, you know, where did that name come from um, and, and why do we use it today and, and how, you know, it comes from, uh, I'm going to butcher this, but um, like the place of the great hill and there's a, a great blue hill right outside Boston and I was sure that that was what it was and it became the sacred thing in my mind but I mean all of this is to say that I think that um, sometimes we disregard the stories that we're telling kids um, especially young kids figuring that we have time to complicate those narratives later on but it's really important to get these stories into their minds at a young age because it will really influence the way they see the entire world around them as they grow up. I think that's so powerful. That's a hundred percent. And I'm so glad we went this way because this is, you know, kind of exactly what we're talking about in this podcast is that um, there are things that we are like very interested in, or we kind of like accepted unquestioningly or like actively rebelled against in childhood. And then, whatever our like strong reactions or affinities were we've had these um these really like wandering journeys to get to our careers the stories that were told as children stay with us and it's it's you know it's up to the people who tell the stories really to tell us the stories that will be i don't want to say like the most true but the most um useful to us as citizens in this like very global world where not everybody's family came over on the Mayflower. What sort of challenges did you like, I don't know, like, I don't know if face is the right word, but Mm -hmm. hurdles that you had to jump to get into your position? I think I actually, I've had a pretty um, lucky trajectory (laughs) in terms of getting me to where I am. Um, you know, the museum field in general is is a tough one to break into. They're, they're, it's a great field, and so a lot of people um, would love to be a part of it, but there, there are a few jobs um, in this country in particular. Uh, funding for museums is pretty low, um, so when you find a paying job, it's not necessarily um, a job that will support you financially, so that's always um, very tough, and I think... Um, I have been very privileged to to have the sort of financial support system that has allowed me to have multiple part-time museum jobs for a number of years. Were that not the case, I don't know that I would have continued. Were it were it um, had it been necessary for me to find a job that supported me better than museum jobs tend to, um, I'm not sure that I would have made it to the place where I am right now. But I think, you know, in, in terms of getting a foot in the door in this field, that's really all it's about is, is you have to you have to just kind of find a place, um, whether it's part time, whether it's volunteer work um, and then work yourself up. You know, there are a lot of really talented people there. And if you've got talent and if you've got passion, that will shine through. Um, at least I hope that that's what's <laughs> helped me get to where I am. Um, we can debate my talent later on, but um I've seen her teach lessons. She's very good. <laughs> we work together. Okay. And Aaron can it, certainly. Like, is this podcast endorsement? You know, like Aaron saying, I've seen you teach. You're very good at it. Is this the new like LinkedIn endorsement? You're a, a teacher? Part-time. 
Brenna, do you want to tell us a little bit about what it was like juggling more than one uh, museum ed part-time job? (laughs) Yes. um, It's uh, very frustrating. Um, Mostly just because I'm terrible at uh, organization and that's, that's really the one thing that will keep you afloat. I mean, frustrating on the one hand, it is also extremely rewarding and you know, I think that the, the financial issue is, is a real one and one that our field needs to grapple with from a purely intellectual standpoint. Working at more than one museum, specifically more than one historic site, you get this wonderful uh, transference of information and um, methodologies and pedagogy between the two that is really enriching. Um, so I, I, I really enjoyed that portion of it, getting to, to compare notes between two different places at the same time. But I, I'm, I'm currently moving into a one job situation, and I'm pretty happy about that, too. We're very excited for you. <laughs> I, I am super excited because one job should be enough. It should be. That, that is like my like rallying cry. Like, like, I respect the hustle. I am a hustler, but one job should be enough. Absolutely. No, I couldn't agree more. Brenna, do you want to tell us a little bit about your position now? Um, Can you walk us through a typical day of your life at work? Sure. Well, so I I have moved into my current position during our new reality. Prior to this thing, uh, I had been working as a museum educator at the Whaling Museum and then also the South Street Seaport Museum in Manhattan. Um, So um, there are a lot of similarities between the two sites. They're both maritime history sites. I was a, a museum educator at both. A typical day would be perhaps a field trip. Come in, you do you know your program, um, you teach kids about the history, you help them to experience any artifacts or any um, historic spaces that you might have for them. Uh, you might follow that up after they're they're gone with um, another program, perhaps a a public program, a a walking tour, um, or an outreach program, you might take something from the museum to another location and and teach another program there. Um, So it is is just um, teaching in in a variety of settings, um, multiple different topics, whatever is called upon on any given day. So you are uh, very, I want to say quick on your feet with this, because I think one of the, like, most challenging but also most rewarding things about working with the public and that includes like school groups and and like doing doing any sort of public facing work is that your day like it can be very planned out and regimented right like at at nine o'clock the the bus full of kids is coming and and we're gonna do this outreach and then later I'm gonna go across town and do this but anything can change at any time so you have to be like this super, just like very nimble. Um, Absolutely. I was just going to ask if you could tell us about like a time where you had to be nimble. I think there's kind of a, a Murphy's Law in museum education that, you know, <laughs> your whatever your first solo program is, is going to go wrong in every possible way. Um, and I Absolutely. Think that, <laughs> <was true. laughs> I think that's been true of every site I've ever worked at. Um, I, at the, at the South Street Seaport Museum, my first solo field trip, the, um, the programs there are about two hours long, and the bus was an hour and a half late. Oh, um, God. So 
And because, you know, our, our time is really precious and, and we try to pack in as many school programs as possible, you have virtually no turnaround time between one program and the next. And so this class comes and you have to figure out how to take a two hour long tour of uh, an 1885 tall ship and compress it into 30 minutes, which in reality is really only enough time to get a class of 30 up a gangway and then back down again. So you, I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of improv that goes into museum education because regardless of how much time you have with the kids and how many activities you are able to do or not do, um, you still, at least I think, have to go back to that story we talked about before. You have to make sure that they leave with some kind of narrative in their head, something to remember, some story that will stick with them. How do you take uh, a very wide-ranging story that may include the entire history of the island of Manhattan and shipping through the 19th century and the movement of people and goods and basically boil it down into something with a beginning, middle, and end that will be compelling enough that they can take back but also learn in realistically about 15 minutes. Um, that's that's the kind of on-my-toes thinking that that comes up a lot in my work. Okay, so now I really want to know if I was, you know, like one of those kids that you had just, you know, like gotten up the gangway we were standing on this you know we were standing in the harbor on this boat what would you tell me and and you really only have enough time to you know say like what five sentences and then you have to pack us back up onto a bus again so what would you tell us every educator is going to react to this kind of situation differently which is what i love about museum education is that you have this flexibility to tell the story that that you love the most that you're most connected with but also to go off into any tangent that the kids seem to connect with at any given time. Um, Other educators at the South Street Seaport Museum, I'm sure would have turned to the story of the goods that were being shipped. This was a cargo ship. So they would have talked about um, the, you know, how they were produced, where they were produced and, and why they were being transported. Others would have talked about the New York economy in the 19th century and what that looked like. Um, I, love talking the most about people's lived experience, um, especially in in a historical space. So if I have 10 minutes to walk you through a tall ship, I am taking you first to the forecastle, the cruise quarters, <laughs> to sit you around this tiny little table um, and talk to you about how you would have lived in this gross, cramped, hot, smelly little room for three to six months with 20 of your peers who were also gross and smelly and how that was very different from the experience of those who lived on the other end of the ship and then I would quickly walk you over (laughs) to the captain's quarters to show you what his lived experience was like Um, because that compare and contrast is something that I find really fascinating and something that I think kids can relate to in a very short period of time because there is that physicality again they can they can be uncomfortable in the forecastle and want to move on and then be awed by the the luxury in the captain's quarters and that's something i hope you know they'll take with them when they leave this very very short (laughs) field trip that i've planned for them in my mind i love it you know and i i really like the way that you go right to like labor history because I'm a labor historian, so I'm always, if you think it's beautiful, an artist made it. If you have it, someone brought it to you. And like, if, if you're using it, there was a lot of work to get this from concept to prototype to you to use and then to maintain it. So I, I love that you started with, okay, how did this stuff actually get to New York Harbor? 
And what was that process like for the people who were doing the, the transportation? So what do you think is like the most exciting part of your work or what is the part of your work that like you get up in the morning and you get on that Metro North or you get on 95 and you get on that Throgs Neck Bridge and you're like, I'm so excited to go to work today. I have a great job. I, I love it. Um, the teaching aspect is, is definitely wonderful. I, I am a performer and it's really fun to get to interact with a group of people, uh, especially kids I and mean, kids who don't really want to be there. <laughs> um, a lot of the time, I, I think it's, it's, it's a really exciting challenge to turn their minds around and to say, you know, no, this can be fun. I understand that you would rather be somewhere else maybe, but we're going to have a good time today. Museums of necessity have uh, a wide range of programming that they offer. You know, you, you try to draw in as many people and, and make as much money as possible. And so we offer um, history programs and uh, literature programs and science programs and creating those programs and getting to do the research that is involved in crafting a new lesson is something that I just go nuts about. And Aaron sat across from me for several months and can tell you that I um, <laughs> I love a good Wikipedia rabbit hole. I love um, <laughs> new weird things, I, gross facts, bizarre ideas that you can share with kids. I and, and you get to learn it. You get to become an expert for a short period of time and all of these different little subjects. And that's something that I absolutely adore. And it's funny that you say that. When I was teaching at Cold Spring Harbor, there were moments, of course, when you're trying to kill just a few minutes of time and you want to bring all the kids together and wrap up and make sure that they walk away remembering something. You start asking questions to engage them. And I remember I would always ask, what's the grossest thing you learned today? And oh my goodness, you get a wide range of answers there. Um, some of the kids would just point at the smell boxes. <laughs> I don't I don't know if you want to explain what the smell boxes are. <laughs> I would love to explain what the smell boxes are. I'm such a big fan of the smell boxes. Um, I immersive history. I yeah. Um, so in the Cold Spring Harbor Whaling Museum, um, we have these two tiny wooden wall mounted boxes that visitors are invited to open up and smell. And inside there are uh, scents. Some some company has magically found a way to recreate <laughs> um, the smell of various things. We have the smell of boiling whale blubber. What that smells like? I actually don't mind that one. A lot of people like that, or you know, really hate that one. But I I think it kind of smells like bacon. Um, and as a vegetarian, I really miss bacon. So I. <laughs> The whale blubber I'm a fan of. The other one, though, smells like um, like 30 unwashed sailors. And that, if you can imagine the rankest changing room in a gym that you have ever been to, um, that is the smell of that smell box. Yuck. And it's it's genius. The 30 sailors, you, you're whaling for about three to five years, um, depending on where you're whaling, your... Um, the time spent between land stops is, is different lengths of time, but we can pretty much be sure that they are not bathing themselves regularly. 
and that smell is is what the forecastle, what the living quarters would smell like if you have thirty grown men doing very physical labor without a bath for several months. So thank you for that. Um... <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. I, I can actually kind of like imagine that smell a little bit. Um, yeah. You think I, you can? I promise you can. <laughs> as a as a field trip goes on, for instance, and more and more kids open this one particular smell box, the entire museum starts to reek, and uh, I I can't stand to be in the building um, after it. Okay, and then what kind of what aspect of your work makes you like reach for another coffee or? have to have like a moment and say okay all right um we're gonna do it <laughs> it is it is almost uh almost always the adults that accompany a large group of children sometimes adults are are wonderful and the teachers are almost always um, on top of things I guess I'm talking more about chaperones I struggle for patience sometimes when you're trying to get the attention of 50 school children and the chaperones won't stop chatting. That is a, a moment where I need to step back and have a little meditative breathing session with myself before coming back. But when the students are really engaged, when they're really excited about something and it's, it's the adults along on the journey who are standing in the way of, of us continuing down that trajectory, that that really frustrates me. How has the COVID-19 outbreak impacted your work? I work, I mean, working with the public is, um, is really the essence of my job and is something that I'm able to do, but in a very different way. <laughs> uh, everything has gone digital at museums. Um, you know, you are putting out uh, virtual lesson plans if you have them, um, talking about artifacts through photos on social media and for museum education and, and I imagine any other education, but um, every every interaction in a museum education setting should be give and take. You maybe have one or two main ideas that you want to get across, but, um, but everything else should come from the audience. Their interests should drive you. You should follow where they want to go in terms of what they want to learn from any interaction. And virtually, there isn't that same ability to get a sense of what they want. You, you can't, um, unless they're avid commenters, you can't figure out what, how they're interacting with the material that you're putting online, whether they, whether they like it, whether they're using it, whether it's difficult, whether they want more. Um, so that's been extremely frustrating. Uh, however, I will say, I, I feel like I am in the middle of this just creative whirlwind, which is, is I'm, I'm honestly having a lot of fun trying to figure out these problems. You know, with this new, pl I mean, first of all, I have to say, and Aaron can probably back me up, I'm terrible at technology. <laughs> um, just terrible. The fact that I managed to, to figure out how to talk to you guys today is like a mini miracle. But um, learning not only sort of the technology behind posting things online, but learning the, the language of all these different social media platforms to figure out you know, what kind of content is appropriate for each and then, and then creating content that you are fairly confident can be just sent out into the world and used by a variety of people for a variety of different reasons in a variety of settings is kind of a fun problem to figure out. So I've, I've, I've had a lot of, I've had a really good time trying to figure out what to give people during this crisis. 
So on that note, do you feel like there is a pressure to produce? So before the crisis, I think a lot of us were under this pressure to produce and pressure to hustle all of the time. In my situation, I feel like the pressure has increased. You know, museums are are in such a tenuous position now. It's it's unclear when we will reopen, if we will reopen, um, what visitorship will look like after that. And then, you know, to bring it back to sort of financial issues, we're all nonprofits. Um, we're, you know, none of us just, well, I mean, most of us are not just rolling in cash. And so um, there's a there's a, a, a deep concern, at least in my mind, of, um, you know, what can you do right now during this crisis to make sure that your museum comes out on the other side able to stand on its own two legs or, you know, able to, able to survive, able to continue doing the work that it's doing. And so I felt an extreme amount of pressure, um, which may just be pressure that I'm putting on myself, but I, I really want to make sure that I'm producing content right now that, that keeps my museum in the forefront of people's minds, that keeps the community thinking about my museum and, and hopefully wanting to return to my museum in the future. Um, yeah, that's definitely increased. It is like really scary to watch like staples of New York public history buckle. Right now, I mean, a lot of us in the museum education field, whether we're talking to each other on Twitter or Facebook or just texting each other, we're watching the layoffs, the furloughs. We're watching these huge institutions let so many very talented people go and it's scary. Definitely this kind of feeling of uncertainty and precarity in the field. I know I just ordered myself one of those museums are not neutral shirts Mm -hmm. that have been going around. And some of those funds are going towards supporting other museum workers. But yeah, no, this is, I'm getting very tired of the word unprecedented. (laughs) But remember precedented times and we can go. (laughs) (laughs) We don't seem to have language to kind of couch these these times in beyond just unprecedented i i don't i don't know what museum education will look like on the other side of this and that scares me because i i i have a a huge amount of respect for you know the collections teams and curatorial teams that that care for the artifacts and and historic sites but if you don't have a group of individuals who are able to convey those stories to the public I don't really see I don't really see your museum as succeeding then that I mean the the point of a museum is to be there for the people at least in my mind and if if you don't have an education department um, that's able to do things you know robustly and and confidently I I worry about what that means for museums and what they are in essence I am right there with you man I wish there was room on my floating door for you guys (laughs) (laughs) but i feel like we're all just trying to like hold on to our own floating doors like we don't even have lifeboats like let's be real here one of the things i i I do love i try really hard to find the silver lining and one of the things that i love about the time that we're in is that there there are kind of no rules anymore right like you can you can order wine to be picked up from a restaurant now like there's the the playbook is just out the window and we're all dealing with that in a variety of ways. And one of my favorites is that is that the sense of humor that people have just unleashed on the world to cope with this situation has extended to uh, 
very professional settings like museum education. And so (laughs) you can kind of be a little bit more sarcastic. You can kind of be a little bit more tongue in cheek or um, irreverent with with your teaching and your humor now. And that's that's something that I think is kind of an interesting thing to watch and something that I'm definitely taking advantage of the ability to do. Like, like we're living in this world where the rules have drastically changed, right? Like you can pick up wine from a restaurant to go in the state of New York, which I thought was just like a Louisiana thing. I asked my sister like, oh, are you free at like this time? And we could both do yoga at the same time from the same video, but obviously different places. And she was just like, what else would I be doing at that time? <laughs> and I was like, you're right, Jenna. Time doesn't exist and schedules don't matter right now. <laughs> it, it makes it really hard to avoid people, though. When, you know, are you, are you free to chat? No, I, you know, my schedule, As an introvert, but... <laughs> it's just horrible. <laughs> so now that we're talking about kind of like how exhausting the times that we're living in are now, um, but like working with people takes just like so much energy. Like we've talked about this a little earlier. You have to be on all of the time. How do you, you know, like replenish? How do you take care of yourself, especially during like high volume, high contact seasons? Uh, coffee is um, <laughs> is is I very honestly, I mean, with just the whole ritual of getting coffee. You know, you you take a step away from your institution for however long you have between programs. Um, hopefully, to a busy enough coffee shop where no one will try to talk to you. <laughs> You're just there to, to get coffee and, and breathe a little bit, maybe take a very short walk. That's I'm, I'm very fortunate to work in places that are that are close to, to really lovely coffee shops, and I'm not entirely certain what I would do if that situation was not <laughs> the way that it is. So I was actually told that I needed to ask you about the coffee shop near the um, museum that you and Erin worked at together. Sweetie pies! <laughs> <laughs> you did it! Congratulations! World's best cup of coffee. Great job, everybody. It's great to meet you. Hi. They, at this point, just take a huge chunk of my paycheck with them um, whenever I'm there. So my, my take-home has actually been quite good um, now that I'm not allowed to visit. I Well, Cold Spring Harbor, first of all, I, is, a, is a gorgeous little tiny historic town. Uh, Sweetie Pies is an amazing coffee shop in this cute little old house in the middle of town and their coffee will ruin your life. You, it is, I drink their hazelnut lattes and cannot order a hazelnut latte from any other vendor ever again because they're just not as good. And, and that's, that's what Sweetie Pies will do to you. And they have these pastries too. Um, And I got to say, after some of my more challenging lessons or groups or whatever I'd walk down there and I'd buy this lemon tart (laughs) and that was the highlight of that week (laughs) it's true their pastries sell out too so sometimes you know we at uh, the whaling museum you have to sometimes take take turns going out for a break so that somebody can man the front desk and uh, when somebody would come back with a pastry and say hey guys they've got bagel bombs today it was bagel like, bombs. <laughs> I've got to, I've got to find a way to get there right now before <laughs> anybody else is allowed to buy them. But I really so I agreed to work with Erin at the uh, museum that she currently works at for um, two reasons. The first was that I needed money 
and a job is a job. <laughs> and the second is that it's just so beautiful down at the docks. Like, and, like museum jobs are just kind of, like, weird because you don't know what you're walking into any like on any given day. Like, you might think, okay, there's a group coming. There's this task I have to do. There's that paperwork I have to file. But then, like, you walk in and there are raccoons in the attic and you have to figure out a way <laughs> to get these trash pandas out of the attic before they destroy the archives. Aaron and I would just, like, go out to the dock and we would just look at the water and look at everything and we'd take a couple of deep breaths and come back in and, and eat some Swedish fish and figure out what we're going to do. Yes. <laughs> I mean, that is one of the benefits of, of museum work. Uh, you're usually surrounded by some pretty beautiful stuff, which I really appreciate, specifically maritime museums. I mean, you, good chances are you're close to water on any given day. So Brenna, what do you wish people understood about what you do? I think the thing that I wish people understood more um, would sort of tie back into the, the premise of this podcast. I, um, I think there's a general misconception that museum education is divorced from a lot of the scholarship that goes into museum work, mm-hmm. at least in my experience, that hasn't been true. I've always worked at smaller museums, so you tend to wear more hats and be more involved with um, cross-departmental projects. But um, it's not entirely just, you know, wrangling school children. There's a lot, there's a lot of real history um, that goes into it. And, and that's something that I've found to be overlooked, at least, you know, by some people that I've come across. Um, but as one of my favorite parts of the job, so it's, it's certainly something that I, <laughs> I wouldn't be doing this if that weren't true for me. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. I think a lot of the time people overlook the real research component of lesson planning, how important that education aspect is when you're setting that narrative straight from the first point. You've got to be prepared to go down any avenue that your audience wants to go down. And if you're not well-versed, really well-versed in, in whatever topic you're teaching, you're not going to be able to do that. And um, and so you know, museum educators, they really are asked to become relatively expert at whatever it is that they're teaching. And I don't think that that's given enough credit. And children smell fear. They know. I mean, you can go from teaching a lesson on whaling to something like Earth Day, and then something even more divorced from that within the same day. You you really do have to have that mastery all around the board. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that just gets back to like being nimble. So in our first episode, we kind of talked about like when you look at a swan on a pond or some sort of body of water, it just like looks majestic, right? It's like floating and you're like, how, man? And then if the water's really clear or you're like really close to the swan, you can see how hard their feet are working. But I think one of the things that's really coming out about your job, Brenna, and all the hats that you wear is that it, in addition to doing like all of the pedaling that you have to do to stay afloat and to stay, you're doing all of this stuff, sometimes backwards and in heels. Yeah, absolutely. You actually went a little bit more metaphoric with it than I was thinking. Um, when you mentioned the swan, it took me back to one of my first museum ed challenges. Um, I worked at a historic site where we dressed in, in 19th century period clothing, and I once did an entire field trip with a, a bee trapped in my hoop skirt. 
Oh my, oh my goodness. And, and, and that's, that's sort of the swan thing that I was thinking of trying to trying to remember your narrative and hit all your points and make sure the artifacts are safe while desperately, desperately trying to get this thing out from underneath uh, your dress. Um, <laughs> but yes, also, also many hats. I worked with someone once who was um, on her way back from a civil war reenactment and her car <laughs> broke down or her tire, something <laughs> happened and she's out there in this massive skirt trying to change the tire herself on the ground oh my goodness she said a cop showed up and they were just like what are you where are you going they're one of the things that museums have been doing um during quarantine is putting up museum bingo on social media so they'll you tick this box if you've ever done this at our museum and tick this box if you've ever done that and the historic house that i worked for did one for employees and one of the bingo boxes was, you know, have you ever either broken down or gotten gas in your costume? And um, <laughs> it's a very frequent occurrence for, for all of us. So I feel for your friend. Oh, my goodness. I just can't imagine, like, getting all of this stuff out of my trunk to do, like, you know, to jack up my tire and throw the donut on it and, like, wrench those lug nuts, right? Like, in anything other than, like, I don't know, maybe a pair of jeans. But if you could give one piece of advice to your younger self, what would it be and why? I was a I was a very timid young person. I didn't necessarily pursue every opportunity um, that was available to me just because I was worried about any number of things, um, most of which were, were really nonsense. I think I didn't understand as a younger person that these opportunities are sometimes only available to younger people. It is really helpful to pursue anything that comes your way, any kind of internship or any kind of um, mentorship. And, and, and that doesn't mean that you, you know, necessarily have to see it through if it's not a right fit. Don't be afraid to just try. I was very afraid to try um, and very, very happy to kind of coast along for, for, I think, a lot longer than was beneficial. And Brenna, what would you say has been your biggest triumph? Oh, my goodness. Um, <laughs> You know, I very honestly am, am most am most proud of the goals that I have set for myself that I've been able to see through. I, I work as a museum educator, and that's something that I have wanted to work in museums for, for a very long time. And I, I don't even know that I was that strategic with, with getting myself here. Um, I, you know, kind of bumbled along until I, until I, I fell here, but I, um, it's, it's a hard field to, to get into. And the fact that I get to be here and do that feels pretty awesome right about now. I think a lot of us feel like, okay, I just kind of fell into it, but you, you worked for it, Brenna. So I just <laughs> want to like affirm that, that you worked for it. So I know that a lot of people have started projects or done things during the quarantine, but one thing that I think has united all of us is Tiger King. Did you watch Tiger King? Do you know what? I have actually not watched Tiger King. I, <laughs> I'm, I'm so sorry. I, <laughs> I'm only peripherally aware that it's a thing. Um, and I am not a big, I'm not a big pop culture person. I watched Love Is Blind, which, which. Oh, I saw that too. Feels like such a triumph for me, and that was really only because my best friend is very good at coercion. Um, <laughs> Like, it's fascinating, but the, like the debate that I've been seeing in like in public is, do you think Carol Baskin fed her ex-husband to the tigers? 
I take it as almost like an anthropological study as I watched this show. You feel like you're watching an ethnography. It is 100%. absolutely, it's immersive. So if you watch it through that lens, you might actually enjoy it. I was going to say, hearing it described as an, as an ethnography is probably the closest I've come to uh, <laughs> and, to wanting and to like, check it out. So, like, as you're watching it, Brenna, like, I don't know if this will happen to you, but I love cats. So I'd be like, oh, my gosh, those baby tigers, they're so sweet. I love them. And I'm like, oh, my God, no, like, where are you going? Like, this is a dark train. <laughs> and, like, and I, like, it fed into some problem. really interesting wildlife stewardship conversations. <laughs> <laughs> that is genuinely one of my concerns though I do I have two cats and I and I sense anything that is like vaguely cat shaped um has it elicits such an incredible emotional response in me so I'll see like a raccoon on the side of the road and and like have to stop my car because I need to have a good cry so um I'm a little <laughs> concerned about the tigers but okay so then I just want to ask you so there's this woman in the Tiger King universe and she was married to this man and then he disappears and people think that she fed him to the cats he was kind of a jerk so i'm on on the point of view of you know if we all say or like a lot of people are saying eat the rich and carol baskin feeds her rich <laughs> husband to the tigers this is a problem now so i just kind of like want to know where you feel about feeding your husband to the, to the tigers we're feeding someone we don't have to air that part if you're uncomfortable with it <laughs> <laughs> No, I think it's pretty important that the world knows where I stand on on uh, <laughs> feeding men to to giant cats. Um, as far as killing your husband goes, that seems like a pretty creative solution. So I'm actually, you know, if he had to go, I'm I'm in favor of of the more unusual um, ways. Although it does sound like she's also, I mean, if if you know, if what you have at your disposal are tigers, that's just resourcefulness. Clever girl. So, yeah, um, I feel like that's a merit badge, like in Girl Scouts. Like, yeah. and, and I was watching it, and my husband was right next to me, and I was like, I was like, I think she really fed him to the cats. And he's like, Are you gonna tell me something? Yeah, behave yourself. <laughs> Absolutely. Brenna, we'd like to thank you for agreeing to chat with us. We've had a really great time chatting with you, and we can't wait to see what you accomplish in the future. Thanks so much for having me. This has been um, a lot of fun. Oh, it's been fun for us, too. So you can find Brenna at Brenna underscore MT on Twitter. Here at Scholars Beyond the Tower, we're working on putting together an exciting variety of interviews, and we would love to hear from you. We've purposely kept our mission pretty broad because we want to talk about how we as scholars engage with our work with the public inside, outside, and adjacent to the ivory tower. Are you a scholar beyond the tower with a story to share? Email us at scholarsbeyondthetower at gmail.com. We record remotely from the comfort of our apartments. You can find us on Twitter at, at beyondtower, on Instagram at, at scholarsbeyondthetower, and on Facebook as scholarsbeyondthetower. You can find our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, Pocket Cast, Breaker, Overcast, and Radio Public. Please rate, review, and subscribe so we can reach a wider audience. Well, scholars, until next time, stay connected and stay caffeinated. Mm-hmm.